Welcome to the Confluence Investment Management Bi-Weekly Geopolitical Report for November 7th, 2022. The latest Communist Party Congress in China provides fresh evidence that investors can no longer rely on the Chinese marketplace to boost the profits of American companies and bolster the U.S. stock market. I'm Phil Adler. Confluence Investment Management Chief Market Strategist Bill O'Grady joins us today to analyze just what happened at this recent event and what it might mean for investors. First, Bill, my opening statement may be simplistic, but Isn't it true that the huge rally in American stocks in recent years was fueled to a great degree by a globalized marketplace, and China in particular? Well, as we discussed recently, Phil, globalization as it evolved from the early 1990s was an important element to the rise in returns to capital. Initially, Chinese equities were beneficiaries, but since the great financial crisis, U.S. equities have performed better than foreign markets, and the low inflation that was part of globalization played a major role. Regarding the recently concluded Communist Party of China's 20th Party Congress, we're left with the image of a former high official, the General Secretary, being escorted out of the proceedings as General Secretary Xi consolidated his power. Now, this is not a yearly event. It happens every five years. Does this five-year time span magnify the importance of this event? I think so. Communist policymakers tended to like five-year events. For example, the Soviets used five-year plans for economic policy. By having a longer time span, an investment that would take multiple years would have a chance to work itself out. After Mao's revolution, the Communist Party of China adopted this five-year protocol. Because it doesn't happen each year, it, it seems much more momentous. After Mao, when Deng created a system that was designed to term limit general secretaries, the second meeting would usually be when the next general secretary was named. Of course, that system has now been dismantled. Bill, what were key messages conveyed to the world in speeches by this event's headliners? Well, the first is that the economy will now take a backseat to security. The textual analysis of the number of times various phrases are used show that economic development is no longer a major priority. The second is that technological development has become more important, but probably the most important meta takeaway is that the CPC is dominant and she embodies the party. So is it fair to conclude that China is presented in these speeches as a country anticipating more difficult economic times? Well, the whole point of Ding's reform was to lift the economy. A decade ago, it was considered axiomatic that the Communist Party's main legitimacy was delivering very high growth. She has shifted that narrative to make the party supreme, and its legitimacy comes from protecting the Chinese people from outside influences, decadence, and disease. 8% growth is no longer the marker. And so by design, she is signaling that growth will slow. Bill, what clues can we discern in these speeches about China's intentions toward Taiwan? It's pretty clear that China wants to take control of the island, which it considers a province. The selection of two generals with experience on coastal defense and power projection for the Politburo, including one that usually would have aged out under Ding's system, suggests unification as a priority. That being said, we're not seeing any concrete steps to invade. What does the new makeup of the Chinese Politburo tell us about China's willingness to tolerate criticism within its borders? 
It should be noted that within the National People's Congress, there are opposition parties, but these are perfunctory. In reality, the Communist Party is the only real power in China. However, within the party, there are factions. We note a Shanghai clique, which mostly had coastal region members and supported trade and markets. There was a Communist Youth League faction that was mostly members from the interior of the country, and they focused on redistribution. But Xi has created his own faction with members who have personal ties to him. He has virtually eliminated all other factions, suggesting only those with personal ties have influence. As part of that development, dissent is clearly not being tolerated. The extraction of Hu Jintao from the meeting was a symbolic ouster, in my opinion. Can we envision this new emphasis on loyalty within the government playing out maybe the way it did in Russia, with a leader at the top being fed only opinions that feed his bias, resulting in rash actions that endanger world security? Well, I think that's a real danger. Consolidating power in one person improves the efficiency in executing that power, but it also creates conditions that China used to call the bad emperor problem. If you concentrate power, it can be wielded in an improper fashion. Do you think the retreat in Russian power and Russia's difficulties in Ukraine have in any way hardened Xi's resolve? It's pretty clear that the fall of the Soviet Union affected Xi's view of how to deal with dissent. I suspect Russia's difficulties in Ukraine may eventually be viewed as an opportunity by China to dominate Russia. Bill, what clues from Xi's background help explain his worldview and, and signal how he might act in the future? I don't often recommend other podcasts other than our own. But The Economist magazine has prepared us a series of eight podcasts focused on Xi. They try to look at his youth, how he was affected by the Cultural Revolution, and the lessons that he drew. This series also tries to frame other events that affected him. After the tumult of the Cultural Revolution, Xi emerged with a concept that the Communist Party of China must dominate China and rid itself of anything that would undermine its rule. Thus, fractionalism and corruption have to be rooted out. Well, Bill... As you mentioned, although Xi does seem to be relegating the economy to a rung on his priority ladder below security and below possible military expansion, wouldn't a deteriorating Chinese economy have the potential to gravely impact his plans? Well, it sure doesn't appear that Xi thinks so. But often, when a nation has enjoyed favor in one area, it pines for other features that have been lacking. For example, environmental movements tend to emerge in developed economies who can afford them. In poorer countries, growth concerns dominate. But there are risks to slower growth. For example, youth unemployment in China is very high. It's said to be around 20%. Slower growth won't resolve that issue. China also has a major real estate problem that will be hard to address without other sources of growth. And so it does make sense that she would try to de-emphasize the economy. 8% growth wasn't sustainable. But moving on from that might not be easy. Would a Chinese economy with fewer resources be less able to influence other countries and draw them within a China-led economic bloc? Possibly. But China is still a major economy and commodity producers won't be able to easily replace Chinese demand. Even with slower growth, China will be a major demand source. Bill, you write that the Communist Party of China's 20th Congress provides more support to your 
belief that the world is deglobalizing, and that has a lot of investment implications, including shorter business cycles. Why might business cycles be shorter? Well, our thesis is that deglobalization will lead to steeper aggregate supply curves. As growth rises, inflation will too, forcing central banks to tighten monetary policy sooner than under conditions of globalization. The cycles of tightening and easing will tend to shorten business cycles. And how does this impact investment strategy? Well, higher inflation overall implies higher interest rates. Persistently higher interest rates tend to weaken growth stocks and support value stocks. It also means that the diversification effect from longer duration bonds is weakening, forcing one to shorten duration in fixed income portfolios. One possible development could be less risk in credit. Long expansions tend to breed risky behavior in the form of leverage and credit risk. Shorter cycles may actually discourage such actions. Bill, why in this new world in the area of international investing, would broad investing through indexes be less useful? Well, we think they would be less useful because shorter expansions will lead to more rapid sector rotations and thus make broad indices less effective. In theory, what makes indexing effective is that stocks immediately discount all the relevant information in the current price, and thus there is no edge to be gained by individual equity analysis. This idea, I think, is more aspirational than actual. Humans just don't discount information that way. But what made indexing look effective was probably more due to long expansions and low inflation. If that's no longer the case, then broad indexing will likely disappoint. Finally, Bill, was there anything coming out of the 20th Chinese Communist Party Congress that surprised you? I was surprised to the degree that she ran the table. We hear reports that she faces internal opposition in the Communist Party. If it exists, and we think it probably does, it's remarkably ineffective. The fact that no groups were able to stop his dominance, I think, was a bit of a surprise. Thank you, Bill. Our discussion today is based upon sources and data believed to be accurate and reliable. Opinions and forward-looking statements expressed are subject to change without notice. This information does not constitute a solicitation or an offer to buy or sell any security. Our engineer is Dane Stoll. I'm Phil Adler. 